0: I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. Diaspora is a broken mirror. It's this solid, uniform thing that's shattered into hundreds of tiny pieces, and what was once a single, defined reflection staring back at you is now fractured. There's uh, less definition, but at the same time, oddly, there's there's more reflection than there was before, uh, which can kind of be beautiful if, uh, if that analogy makes any sense to you. There are a lot of diasporic communities in the Middle East. A community can become diasporic due to violence or a lack of opportunity. Uh, oftentimes, those two things go hand in hand. Uh, but the darkness that leads to diaspora also creates a new generation that has a lot of choices To make about the culture that they come from, usually with very little reference beyond their own families. And sometimes there's a complete rejection of past culture. Sometimes there's a fight to assert one's heritage and identity in the face of racism or another kind of intolerance. Uh, Discussions like marrying outside one's culture, embracing religion, even how to dress are all topics uh, that become quite suddenly sometimes a priority of discussion. And these kinds of choices are deeply personal, and there's no one story in a diaspora that matches another, similar to how a mirror cracks. Juan Rashid is an example of a third-culture kid, and third-culture kids uh, are people who were raised in a culture other than their parents' culture or country. And growing up in Nashville, which is a huge population spot for Kurds outside of Kurdistan, she had to face these kinds of questions herself some of which she still struggles with. And she's 25 now, and she founded her own organization, Effendi, uh, with a core focus on encouraging advocacy on behalf of the Kurdish community in America, specifically within her generation. And America, specifically for diasporic populations, can be tricky because as an American, I can confidently say that my home country is both everything and nothing, which is very much on purpose. So, Often, smaller first or second generation communities can feel like they're being sucked into a vacuum as they navigate the United States. One asked me after our interview uh, to make sure to say that these views uh, were her own and that her thoughts on generational divide, race, uh, gender roles, and other types of third culture topics uh, don't necessarily represent her community's views as a whole. Um, But I would like to counter slightly and say that because of her advocacy and The deep thought she's given her identity as a Kurdish American. I think she's possibly one of the most prominent leaders in her generation for her community. And I think her answers in our interview reflect that. So with all that said, here's our conversation. Juan Rashid, thanks so much for sitting down with me.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: I think it's uh, best for us to start with where you're from, and just give me sort of a background of your own upbringing, and we'll build it from there.
1: Yes, so my name is Juan Rashid. I am from Nashville, Tennessee. My family is uh, specifically from Amidi, and I go back and I travel there every couple of years, um, but I uh, seeked asylum to America in 96. I was born in Uh, Guam and from Guam I went to Salt Lake City in Utah for a couple years and then a job opportunity brought us to Nashville. Um, I don't think our family understood quite how big the community was here in the early 2000s um, but we created a home here and our identities were created uh, and I'd say that a lot of uh, a lot of it has influenced who we are today both myself my siblings and my parents.
0: So there's this phrase called third culture, uh, which a lot of Kurds in your generation uh, particularly identify as, seeing as like the Kurdish culture uh, has a very large diasporic population. And so I was wondering if you could describe to me what that phrase means to you personally and how you feel it affects your community.
1: Yeah, um, and I don't mean to shrink anyone or or to... uh create groups, but when I think about um, identities, especially being someone who has both an American and Kurdish identity, um, I look at the older generations from my mom, my grandma, my great grandmother, um, and their identities were very much set for them. Um, Of course, they have freedom of thought, but in regards to who they were, they were either a girl or a woman. They were either uh, a sister or a mother. They were either um, maybe to some extent affiliated with a political party, maybe had some education. Um, The identities were much less than what they are today. And when I think about my generation and when I think about the generations that are coming after me, uh, we have much more ability to have three like free thought and understanding of who we wanna be um, and really get to hone in on our emotions and our processes in life. Whereas that may not have always been the case for Older generations, especially maybe my mother and my father, who went through war and had to survive. Um, so I think uh, there's many differences, and one of the differences for me is um, trying to keep a hold of my Kurdish identity, and then also keeping a hold of the American identity that I was raised in. Um, I don't feel at home in America, but I also don't feel at home in Kurdistan when I visit many times either, because there is that divide in thought. Um, and I think ultimately for me, it's where do I show that identity? So if I'm with my parents, I show my Kurdish identity, I show the upbringing that I've been given. Uh, but when I'm with my American friends, I show the American side. Um, I, I would say that a lot of things in my life incorporate being Kurdish. So I always do bring in my culture, my heritage, even religion to some extent. Uh, but for the most part, it's always switching. I mean, you have multiple identities you're working with, and it's what context you're in and how you're gonna show it uh, due to it being appropriate, respectful, or just to fit in with society norms.
0: Do you have trouble identity, identifying uh, with your parents on like certain things uh, or, or is there like a linguistic divide or like, could you go into some of the specific uh, like things that divide you and your parents generationally?
1: Yeah, uh, so, and this is a silly story. I remember it was, the, First day of eighth grade. Um, and I wanted to wear these like dangly earrings. Uh, because I was like, oh, it's the first day of eighth grade. I want to look nice. Granted, we're wearing uniform clothes, not did not look that good. Um, and my mom was like, No, you're not gonna wear dangly earrings. You're a girl, you're young, like, uh-uh, that is not appropriate. And for me, uh I would see girls, of course, in America, they're they're I went to a, a very diverse school, so I saw so many types of individuals or different things. I couldn't understand what was so wrong with wanting to wear dangly earrings. And for me and my mother, I think we had to always have discussions for me to understand what was appropriate and not appropriate. But I think as I've gotten older and I've been able to show my independence and my strength through my character in regards to going to college, you know having a full-time job, um, starting an organization, they've come to trust me in my uh, instincts, but there has always been, I guess, a, a lag between uh, where I am and where my thought process is and where theirs is. And it tends to be a lot of friction to try to figure out how we can get to the middle. Um, and I would say as immigrants, that could be very hard, but as I've gotten older um, it has gotten a little easier because I know what should be brought up and shouldn't be brought up. Um, and as you get older, you, you learn that not, you don't not, you're not always right about everything. You know, it's a teenage girl or a guy. uh think they rule the world, but when you, when you grow up, you realize your parents are right about many things. <laughs>
0: That's true, I think a lot of the times also uh, third culture kids can either trend towards like apathy or advocacy regarding their culture, and you've clearly chosen a more advocational route, but uh, could I was wondering if you could maybe expand on like that divide
1: yeah, um, even in America, there's always the you can sometimes hear individuals say that they don't appreciate being Kurdish or being um, from where they're from because of maybe a lack of understanding of our people and what we have gone through and what we've suffered from. Um, I can't lie and say that I was not a part of that group at one point in my life when I was younger because I was just so confused and I just didn't understand why I couldn't fit in because we had so many types of norms we had to follow. I mean, if you wear red lipstick, maybe that symbolizes something um, in regards to how old you are. I know there's like so many small things and not everywhere in Kurdistan are these beliefs apparent, you know, it's just maybe certain areas. Uh, so it, it was very exhausting, but I think um, there's always good and bad in everything. And so one thing I've tried doing is I really learned that I did enjoy my Kurdish culture and the community I come from more so when I was in college, when I was away and I was attending beginner city of Tennessee and Knoxville. And so what I decided was when I started Fendi Foundation, um, this organization, I've used it to work with kids at a local high school where one out of every eight kids is Kurdish and to just teach them about being Kurdish, teach them about the diversity of our language of our religions of our um, politics of our people and I think that way uh, you're not just listening or learning from what your parents and your aunts and uncles are saying but you're also getting another perspective and I think a lot of times we're tunnel visioned to think one way so it's how do we get these people including myself to love our culture but to also critically think and take it apart and put it back together.
0: Well, and let alone like educating like Kurds in America about their own culture, but uh, also just Americans about Kurdish culture in general. I I mean, I'm, I'm not from Nashville. I'm from Austin and I didn't meet a Kurdish person until I moved out to the region. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, do you find yourself explaining your culture to a lot of people? Maybe you did in college. I think for, like, for example, I think a lot of Americans might not know the difference between Kurds and Arabs if they don't know anything about the Middle East.
1: Yeah. um, And that divide is apparent. Um, So in Nashville, the population is heavily Kurdish. Uh, There is more Kurds than there is Arabs. And so there is, um, and I noticed this in all cultures, but uh, even the Arabs understand certain uh, uh, words and cultural norms amongst the Kurdish community, whereas the Kurds don't know that about the Arabs. Uh, When I went to UT in Knoxville, we had a Muslim student association where it was predominantly Arabs and other uh, communities within the Muslim faith. And I started to actually learn more about uh, the religion of Islam and the way that it was practiced in other regions and communities. And I say that as a reference to Kurdish culture, because I'm sure these individuals didn't know anything about Kurds and I taught them. Whereas in Nashville, You know, the Arabs knew everything about us um, and it wasn't really as much of a teachable moment for them. And so I think the majority always gets uh, to rule to some extent, but yeah, I, I am always explaining myself. We did do a proclamation in March for the city of Nashville. Uh, that the mayor signed, and it was basically to show respect to the Kurdish community for what they've added, uh, both economically and culturally. Um, And so that will be hopefully enacted every year now.
0: Well, and recognition is enormous. And I wanted to actually talk about that specifically with one of the major Kurdish issues in America, which is basic data. Uh, One of the obstacles that Kurds face in America is not even being able to recognize trends within their own population. So I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit.
1: So we don't have much data, which is really sad. Um, I think when we look at other populations, like the Armenian population, Turkish population, the Ada population, um, they have an immense amount of information and an immense amount of support to create activities and sponsorships and donations to uh, uplift the community, but With us, Kurds, not just in Nashville, but all over America, we just don't have that tangible information to really hone in on our strengths in regards to numbers. And so uh, projects like the census are important for us to get that data. Um, For Effendi Foundation, we also are an organization that has the most amount of data on Kurds in America, to our knowledge. Um, We have addresses, phone numbers, And emails that were all uh, found through like public resources. And that has been used to send out COVID relief information, has been used to uh, inform the Kurdish community on what the census is and what their voting rights are. Um, And it's also very much open to more things, hopefully, to send out surveys or to uh, advocate for. Ways that Kurds can get their voices heard in uh, politics, so we can have some weight behind our community to uh, sway the the, pol- the political leaders within the Nashville uh, community, but also um, at
0: large too. And uh, tell me on the census, like there's no Kurdish option. So how do you what, how do you go about filling that out?
1: Yes, so uh, there is individuals who did identify themselves as Kurdish under other, I believe at that time in 2010. In 2020, they created two options. Um, They identified Kurds as white and to uh, say that they're Kurdish underneath white if they were anything else. And then they could have identified themselves as other and then Kurdish. Um, We worked with the census and we were told to do it under white. which would be easier in regards to finding that data. Uh, but Kurds were also welcome to do other and identify as Kurdish. Uh, so we're still waiting on that data. We believe maybe there's around 40 to 60,000 Kurds in, ten, uh, in America as a whole. Um, but we're still we're still looking for that, that information. That information has not been public yet, made public.
0: Do you personally identify as white or, I mean, I feel like a lot of diasporic populations in America can often have to deal with claiming their own identity and especially like European waves of immigration don't begin as white and then transition to whiteness later on because white identity is obviously made up. Uh, so I was wondering like, where, where do you stand on that?
1: Um, I, I stand on MENA. So Middle Eastern, North African. Um But even Middle Eastern can, to some extent, be argued as the wrong term for people within our region, Um, but as of now, uh, through the census, I did identify as white, and the reason being is if not just Kurds, but if Persians, if uh, Turks, Arabs, Armenians, all identified under white with their own ethnical background, if that number is heavy enough in 2030 big enough uh we will have our own Mina categories so then that representation will show forth and kind of hopefully in my opinion i think um stop us from completely assimilating to white culture to becoming full americans and in, in this nation and i say that not as a negative thing but as a way to really hold our culture and our community. Um, I think when we look at Italians, we look at uh, the Irish, the the Scottish, all these individuals, these communities, they have submerged themselves in American culture, yes, and and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think as a first-generation American realizing that my parents left their home country to come to America, I didn't think they realized that maybe by the time I have kids or grandkids that their identities may be erased. That's terrifying. And so if we do have a MENA category, maybe that will help instill our cultural values even longer than before. Uh, It's a small dent, but but I definitely think it'll have a huge impact.
0: Well, and how, in your view, does a lack of representation on the census in that aspect affect your generation psychologically?
1: Yeah, um, when we think about whiteness, when we think about the American culture, the American identity, um, when people would migrate to America, I have met a lot of older individuals. Now, I'm not saying everyone, but uh, a a few individuals whose parents did not want their kids to speak their native language, because they wanted their child to assimilate to American culture, because the more that Americans accept you, or the more that white culture accepts you, the more likely you are to succeed. And to some extent, that is true. For example, I went to the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, a predominantly white institution, I've gotten a lot out of that experience. I, I go to American University, a you know, predominantly white institution, and I've gotten a lot of that out of that experience. And so If you assimilate more, there is more of an opinion that you will succeed maybe. Maybe that that is not true, Um, but I I think um, that's changing. I think American society, especially uh, millennials and Gen Zs are starting to realize how important it is to respect people's identities and not create stereotypes or assumptions. With that being said, we as Kurds um, and other individuals in the Mia community really need to hound in on our culture to keep it for our kids and our great grandkids because that—that um, that is who we are. You know, I, I want my kid to know what iproch is. <laughs> um, I want my grandkids to like it too and not think that it's like a little spicy, so um, yeah.
0: Uh, Beyond just data recognition, what kind of other issues do you see affecting specifically the Kurdish community in Nashville and also in America in general?
1: Yeah, I I think other issues are um, how society is changing so rapidly. Um, I think that the Kurdish community, it's kind of like we've frozen in time. Um, I would say in Nashville, I I don't know if I can't speak for other areas of America, um, and it may be the case. but. our parents want to keep their identity. That is what they know. They don't want to integrate in American society and that is completely understanding. Um, So with that being said, they're continuing to keep certain ideas and certain traditions alive. Whereas even if you go to Kurdistan, that's not the case. Um, I go every two to three years and each time I go, I'm amazed at how much has changed, right? They're progressing so fast from How the girls are wearing clothes to like how late people are going out to uh going to school functions all the time going on trips right like society is advancing in our home country but sometimes when we look at our home here in the diaspora we are not um anywhere close to that advancement and that's because we want to keep our culture right but at the same time how does that harm our girls, how does that harm our boys? And so sometimes I think it can be really uh, mentally exhausting to always try to work with your parents who have a certain view and then you are seeing how society is progressing and you don't know how to work with both identities, especially the young generation where they have social media, they have uh, access to platforms that maybe my age or older never did because it just didn't exist yet.
0: What do you think the differences are actually between girls and boys and, and how they're affected psychologically as like third culture kids in America?
1: Um, I can't speak for everybody uh, in this regard, but I would, yes, I would say for me, for example, um, like, I I realize that the girls are, how do I, so I'll say it this way. When I see my father, um, I see a man who is a provider who has really tried hard to ensure that the family is good. Both uh, always having food on the table, uh, like us being financially stable, having a roof over our heads. Um, And I look at him, he has five brothers and a bunch of uncles and he grew up with these boys and these men and he learned what was appropriate for him to do when he got older and he got married. Would I say that my grandmother gave him a lot of advice? I don't think so. Um, I think that he knew his identities and that's what he followed, that's what he did. Um, Now, in regards to my mother and her upbringing, um, she was probably, she had a lot of sisters. So she always had people giving her advice. Um, She learned how to cook, she learned how to clean. She learned how to run a family, right? That was within her identity. Now, when we think about America, we think about these two individuals and their identities and i look at myself and i look at my siblings i look out my cousins and everybody else that i know i see that the girls still are given a lot of advice they're looked after they're uh treated as if they're a gem right and then i i think maybe to some extent that relates to religion i don't know and so there is always um an urgency to watch the girl to govern the girl, what she does, what she doesn't do, because that is historically what has happened. Whereas for the boys and the men, it has always assumed that they will know, they will figure it out. Well, in America, I think that kind of, it it short circuits kids, right? You uh, you're told everything you're supposed to do. Your mom helps you do your laundry, helps you clean all these things. You go to high school, you know, you, you finish it You've always had teachers on you telling you what you can and can't do, but when you graduate and you're expected to go to college, you're expected to get a job, well, you, you're you not sure because maybe you've never actually been given the independence to make those certain choices. Whereas for the girls, well, we've always had to figure out when is the right time to clean? When is the right time to cook? When is the appropriate time to say this? When is not the appropriate time to say that? Um, there's always been more regulations, right? And with that, because of that guidance, maybe we're more susceptible to knowing what we're supposed to do when we get older compared to the guys. Um, This is not the case for everybody and and not all families but I do think that um, our society sometimes leverages one group over the other Um, and each group has their own privilege and their own fortune Um, but I think as we progress in society we really have to figure out how do we make girls and boys equal to one another both in regards to freedom both in regards to how they understand and anticipate what religion is, um, as well as their mannerism, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, there's a lot of parts to that.
0: Yeah, including dangly earrings.
1: Yes, including my dangly earrings from eighth grade. I'm sure I still have them. <laughs>
0: Uh, real quick, could you tell me sort of about your organization Effendi and its beginnings and why you felt it was necessary to, to start an organization like this?
1: Yeah, so um, some background about me. Um, I went to a Title I high school. Um, I was super involved. I was in all the organizations. I was president of the Special Needs Kids, uh, Best Buddies was the program, SGA. Just really enjoyed community work. Um, I took that in in college, uh, but I graduated a degree with analytics uh, from the business school. And then in 2019, I went to Kurdistan uh, in the Bashar region, and um, I volunteered at a Yazidi camp. And then I realized, you know, I want to do more. I've done so much for other communities. I want to do something for my community. And so I worked as a director, um, and we decided to uh, send products to Kurdish communities and Bashur uh, in three different villages Um, and when I came back to America I partnered up with two businesses and we uh, had a about one month fundraising event where we had the Kurdish community send products to um, us to send to Kurdistan and we've been doing that ever since annually every year and I realized like, hey, this is fun. Like I enjoy this work, I've always done this, like why not just start an organization? You know, I I didn't realize how hard it was gonna be. I didn't realize uh, all that went to it. I just knew that I wanted to do something where I could help the community. Uh, And I thought if there was an organization, uh, one, there's credibility and then two, hopefully my integrity would show even more uh, as that's a very vocal, point of just my personality as a person. Um, and yeah, I, I started it and, um, you know, one of the first major projects was doing the census. Um, I had planned to do census, I really wanted to do it. And it worked with the mission of Affendi Foundation where we advocate for the Kurdish community, recognize the Kurdish community, teach them about, uh, you know, their, their uh, civil rights, the their, their rights of Americans, um, and it just you know, spiraled into something beautiful. We did webinars, uh, international and local about women's rights, Black Lives Matters, entrepreneurism, um, all of these things to really help have the community understand what they could really go forward with. Um, so it's it's been pretty amazing. Currently, we did a proclamation. Um, we've been working with trying to get sister cities uh, acknowledge with the national city and then Erbil um, and we've done COVID outreach. We work with kids right now, um, hopefully trying to instill values in them that will make them the next leaders of the Kurdish community here um, to take on some of this work.
0: And in general, what are you hoping for the Kurdish community in Nashville and America for the next generations? Like, how are you, what do you, how do you envision the Kurdish community operating in America in the future?
1: Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) I would, I, yes, um, I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, It's a great question. Uh, I would say a passion and a pride in their identity. Um, You know, at the end of the day, God forbid if anything were to happen, we can still always go back to Kurdistan. Uh, We have that privilege for having, you know, a, a region that is safe for us to travel to. Um, and because of that, I, I want to ensure that kids have the ability to know who they are and where they come from. So if they ever do want to go back to the homeland or their kids want to ever go back to the homeland, they won't be shocked or surprised. Um, and I also think that in the future, I really do hope Kurds get to have an impact politically in regards to what they believe is right. Uh, regardless of uh, their ideology, I think that if we have the numbers, whether it's someone on the right side or the left side, um, they can't advocate for what they want in their views because that is their right as American citizens. And I think we should really uphold the constitution um, and what we've been uh, given because that is a fortune that maybe a lot of people don't have in other countries and use that to benefit our community as best as possible.
0: Well, Juan Rashid, thanks again so much for talking with me today.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I'm, I'm so excited uh, for this podcast. I really appreciate the
0: time given. Of course. Thank you. I'd like to thank Juan Rashid for talking to me once again. And thanks to you, our audience, of course, for taking the time to listen to her. Effendi, her organization, is linked below uh, this podcast episode on our website. This podcast is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple or one of the other ones, be sure to visit our website, KurdistanIn.net. There's a link below. If you'd like to leave any questions, comments, uh, critiques, you can reach out to us at info at Thanks again. I've been Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan.